0: This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Few designers have made as great an impact in as short a time as Ken Folt. In the past decade, his theatrical take on historical styles has resulted in stunning homes in San Francisco, New York, Montana, and Cape Cod. His designs for hotels and restaurants, from the Battery in San Francisco to Legacy Records in Manhattan, have set new standards for conviviality and hospitality. He's a darling of the Silicon Valley set and his loving approach to the past, mixed with his own choix de vivre, have influenced a generation of younger designers. He's known for being a natty dresser, a bon vivant, a dog lover, a generous host of extravagant and memorable parties, and a dedicated supporter of causes large and small. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Ken
1: Folk. Hi, Ken. Hi. I want to meet that guy. He sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) He is.
0: So I know you're one of the hardest working designers in the country today. That's well known. But I think to a lot of people who don't know your background or whatever, you're like a bit of a Gatsby character, you know you seem to have come out of nowhere a decade ago, and suddenly everybody knew who you were, and everybody was impressed with what you were doing. So tell i know you 're from Virginia, but talk a little bit about your background and how this came about.
1: I do often say that I made my life up. I moved to San Francisco shortly after college. I met my now husband in Boston. And moved to San Francisco and truly made up my life. And if you're going to make up a life, you better make up a good one, I I think. But I was, I was born in Virginia. And I think you did. I did, right? <laughs> I want to be me when I grow up. Um, and I did. I grew up in a small town in Virginia, in rural Virginia, and always had what my mother called illusions of grandeur. They would bring me out at dinner and say, tell everyone where you're going to live when you grow up. And I would say Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, I had not left my hometown at that point. And they were like, where will you live in this place called Manhattan? And I would say a penthouse.
0: I Believe me, I relate to that.
1: <laughs> I definitely had illusions of grandeur, but I always saw life through these sort of, not just rose-colored glasses, but and it really wasn't about really trying to be grand myself. It was that I thought, life should and could be lived a certain way and that nothing should ever just be taken for granted and that I wanted to bring everyone along for the journey because I wanted it to be better for them. And I felt like I didn't necessarily i mean, I did know it at the time, but I didn't know that it would be a profession or it would be my life's work but it was part of my DNA and I wanted to bring people along for this journey. I saw life. I write about it in our first book of, that I always saw life in a cinematic fashion, that that it was as if a troop of dancers would come from stage left at any moment. And I wanted everyone else to experience it that way because I thought how boring or uninteresting or sad if they don't get to have all of these wonderful experiences. And so it's kind of, how I created my own world and my job.
0: And what's interesting to me is, uh, I mean, like many successful people, you're very, very talented, but you also had great timing and you arrived in San Francisco at a time when the tech boom was catching on. And, you know, at least judging by the HBO series, Silicon Valley, a lot of those tech guys are maybe not the most sophisticated culturally. And one of the things that always impressed me about you and your work is how you invite people to live better. It used to be in the 40s and 50s, the decorator, shall we say, was a bit of a social arbiter. When there was a more defined social world, they would help their clients navigate that, get them entree onto boards for different things. And it seems to me that you did it in a much more up-to-date way, but you helped a lot of your clients clients to do that? Because I mean, first of all, you started out, one of the things you did was event planning. And I think one of the things that everybody knows puts you on the map was doing Sean Parker's wedding, that extravaganza. But I'd love to know your take on how you encourage people to live better on a day-to-day basis beyond the wedding, beyond the fabulous weddings. And I know you did Kevin Seistrom's wedding day-to-day and how you brought that into their lives.
1: I've never thought thought of myself just to sort of clarify or or convey as an event planner, I have done that, you know, and we Mm -hmm. do that for our clients, but it happened and it speaks to the bigger idea. We want it much as you described to sort of create lives for our clients. When we do a job, it's the knives, the forks, the spoons, the shampoo, the candle that's burning the flowers, it's the pantry is stocked. And it's not simply just being an arbiter of taste, it's helping them live their best lives. And so it's different every time. This isn't like... No, you don't have a standard look. So that's what makes it hard work because you have to Mm -hmm. care about these people, you have to learn about them and you have to help them manifest this. And so I think really it was who I was from as part of it wasn't a plan I started one of the very first jobs I had was for a client who loved my taste and I helped them with their house and suddenly she was going to get married and I'm like of course I can help you do the wedding and and I would also help you do a dinner party or pick out a tie to wear on CNN whatever that was I was that guy And so when I first came to San Francisco, it wasn't like I landed and it was rainbows and butterflies. I worked at our friend, our mutual friend, Gene Tartaglia, had a a beautiful restaurant and I ran the front door and I was always dressed up then. And people thought I owned the restaurant, but (laughs) just the host making enough money so that I could have my day job. But it did. It was a fortuitous moment that I happened to be in this city and happened to be San Francisco is a mythical, magical place. And it is celebrated for its diversity. And yet that diverse community doesn't always come together. The the tech folks, the old blue blood moneyed folks, the leather community, the drag queens. And I was always questioning, well, why not? And so I would have parties and I would bring them all together. And it felt genuine and sort of safe and fun for everyone. And so it kind of lit a match where I connected with all of these folks and I became connected to them. And um, certainly it helped that I was here at a moment in time where vast fortunes were made. You know, we are living with the Thomas Edisons, the Henry Fords of our time, people who have changed the way we live our lives. And I'm Setting in the room with them and not only setting in the room with them, I'm crafting their lives and alongside them. And so it was an amazing time, but it's been, while it may appear that I suddenly kind of came out of nowhere, it was just sort of my own journey, but it wasn't, it wasn't fast. I, I didn't feel like it to me happened overnight, but I do think suddenly for some people, it seemed like I was everywhere.
0: But as is the case with all the best overnight sensations, a ton of hard yeah. work, there's years a, and years story of hard work b- before. before that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. right. But I think you raise a good point too about why you had such successes. I do feel about your work that there's a real authenticity to it and a real pleasure to it. And you convey that pleasure to your clients and you grant them permission to live with pleasure and to live with beauty, which I think a lot of people don't allow themselves. And my question to you is, how do you continue to translate that visually? You know, you love the past and, you know, your house in Providence Town is historic and it's full of old things. And the industrial aesthetic that was so hot probably 10 years ago or whatever, and still has an influence. How do you do that in terms of visually translating people's Desires, or showing them the desires, or maybe not even aware they have.
1: Every project we do starts with a, a written narrative, which I think some people may find surprising for someone like me who's very visual for a, a field that's very visual, that we start with words.
0: I find that hugely encouraging.
1: <laughs> we are, we are storytellers. And in order for me to work with a team and in order for me to articulate, the client, we tell a story and everyone is different. Someone once said to me, no wonder you love your job. It's like you're a serial entrepreneur, everything is new. And so it's not like we don't bring our own point of view or our own proclivities, but every time we start a job, It's a clean slate in my mind. And that depends on the people and the place and sort of where we're trying to go. And I often get asked like, you know, what are your sources of inspiration? And certainly used to travel.
0: Right, hopefully we will again.
1: a day-to-day basis, (laughs) you see things, but I do have this weird sort of well of ideas, of weird things that run in my head and I call them movies. And so every project, whether it's a wedding, whether it's a dinner, whether it's a 300 room hotel or a a grand residence, a 17th century monastery, whatever it is, it has its own tale. And so I think that that's what keeps them so sort of unique and that they all start through the same process with us. And there are these Movies in my mind, and I guess I hope I never run out of them because (laughs) then I'll be in big trouble.
0: Well, it's interesting because Ralph Lauren's the only other designer I think of who talks about his work in terms of movies, you know, and he has not run out of ideas. So I don't think you need to worry. I wanted to ask you. We mentioned hospitality, hotels and restaurants. And God knows you've done some of the most influential restaurants, certainly in New York, Carbone and Sedell's and now Legacy Records. And I know in San Francisco, you've done so many restaurants. What's the difference between doing a home and doing hospitality, a hotel or a restaurant? Do you approach them differently? Do you still do the narrative for the hotels?
1: We don't. We don't approach them differently. We Mm -hmm. approach every... which may seem weird. That's the one standardized thing. We have the same approach in the fact that we write the words down. Then we begin to visually tell the story. And so that's the only, I think, formulaic thing that we do is Mm -hmm. that's a process. And that process allows us to say, okay, here's the pitch basically for the movie. And everyone sits around the table. That's the team on the project. And we describe it. And then we go away and we sort of visually began to bring it to life. And so when we do hospitality projects like Legacy Records, it starts with a story. You know, that was a whole building there in Hudson Yards. And so there were private residences and multiple venues inside of it. And so it was a very layered story and began. The name of that place really came from uh, historically there was a recording studio there. And that's where the the name Legacy Records comes from. So oddly, that part is the same. However, the purpose is different. If we're doing a hotel, we're doing a hotel with Pharrell in Miami. Like how amazing and fun is that? He's an extraordinary creator. and, And yet we went through that exact same process. But the idea was very different. You know, it had a different purpose. It has a different community than a private residence in Jackson Hole, Montana for a private individual.
0: Right. And when you do a a hotel or restaurant, you do every detail of the branding. Is that correct? I mean, don't you do the logo, the uniforms of the servers? We do. Yeah. And how important is that to shaping the whole experience that a visitor or, you know, somebody who's staying there or somebody who's going for dinner? How important do you think that is? Is it a
1: subliminal thing that
0: people notice or?
1: We don't ever pretend that we are the only sort of creative engine in any project and we are wonderful collaborators and we want to learn from all of the amazing people. But for nearly every project we do, we sign on as the creative director and especially in hospitality where that means creating the experience from beginning to end. Because I think what feels and what helps places be successful, but also have them feel genuine and interesting and engaging with folks is to have that holistic approach, to have something that has a thread that goes from beginning to end. And so we worked on a project, the Commodore Perry Estate in Austin, Texas, which we actually own a piece of. That's kind of the latest thing. Oh, congratulations. Well, we've begun to take stakes in things rather than just create them. I feel like we're going to believe in them. We should actually invest in them. Right. It's the same amount of work. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, might and as so well. why not? If I'm no. putting my heart into it and I'm sort of creating right. these things from whole cloth, why not uh, kind of put your money where your, your mouth is, as they say. But for instance, there, it's everything from what the person who greets you is wearing to the business card, to the shampoo in the room, to any touch point through the process we're a part of. And I think that that. Rather than taking something and sort of taking the ingredients and then putting them together and trying to bake this thing, we are sort of the chef the whole way along to ensure that it's cohesive and that as disparate as it may seem in places, that it has that thread, as I say, that runs from beginning to end.
0: And is it easier for you to work with a historic property which has a backstory or do you prefer to create a whole new story? I mean, I know you love history and you love antiques and vintage pieces. Seems like I don't think you've ever done a project that hasn't incorporated a fair amount of vintage.
1: I don't know that I definitively have a choice. I personally, I live in homes that have a history and a story to them and and are actual historic uh, properties. But I don't know that from a from a work standpoint that I have a preference. If a place is from whole cloth and has never existed, it's a wonderful opportunity to create that because it it doesn't. I think it's probably easier at times when something already as they say in the South, grow where you're planted. You know, it's right. it's a, it's sometimes when you have like the Commodore Perry, estate was an interesting dichotomy. There was a 1920s Spanish influenced mansion that was built on this property. But then we built 50 Ober's hotel rooms and a new restaurant. And but we had a lot to work with, whereas the legacy records example, that was built from scratch. You know, there was nothing that existed on that that site. It had been but demolished. But you did know and the so history,
0: the music history, and I'm sure.
1: I did. And we always sort of find some, some piece, some, you know, reference, because even when we do, which people don't always associate with us, but we do a decent amount of it, even when we do very contemporary work and modern work, um, you know, I think that there is something that, for people to want to sink into something to feel like, you know, when you walk into a room or to anything event, as blown away as you are and as excited as you are, and you're like, this is beautiful. I've never, it's not good if you feel like you don't belong. Like if you don't feel like you can sit down and enjoy yourself and have a beautiful meal, or if I'm delivering a house to you and you're like, this is amazing, but it's not us. I don't feel like I'm comfortable here. I can't. And that's important to me because I, ne- I would not think that we were successful in our job if we didn't craft spaces that felt welcoming. And part of that is to somehow give them a mystique as if they're like nothing you've ever seen, yet there's something familiar about them because it's that familiarity that sort of gives us permission to engage. Right.
0: It's that balance. You have, You have to like... The familiar and then the, oh, I've never seen this before. This is fabulous. Yeah. It's very, very hard, I think.
1: And that's the sort of secret recipe. Yeah.
0: And you manage to hit that note all the time. It's amazing to me. Hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I am the co-founder and president of Cherish. Professional designers are invited to join the Cherish trade program to access special benefits like net pricing and a special trade-only customer service hotline. New this year, we're also introducing a loyalty program where designers earn $75 in cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish. We do hope you'll join us, and in order to do so, please visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's spelled C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show. Tell me a little about the St. Joseph's Art Society, because that's one of your more recent ones. I mean, I've had the pleasure of staying at the Battery, and I know how special that is, but the St. Joseph's Art Society seems to be a huge success, and I haven't yet seen it, sadly, myself. So tell, tell me a little about that.
1: It's an extraordinary thing and probably the most personal and perhaps audacious thing that I've ever been engaged in. The physical structure is here in San Francisco, but then I'll talk maybe for a moment about how it's a bit become bigger than that. But it is a 1913 National Historic Landmark. It was a Roman Catholic Church. When you say church, people think that it's a quaint little chapel. When it was built, it was the largest Catholic church west wow. of the Mississippi. It is a grand, it's much more a cathedral. It is a very large, dramatic, and you know I can't right. take credit right. for any of that. It was beautifully designed and epically designed, it was damaged in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake and red tagged. And at that point, it was a, the church was deaccessioning things. There was a Filipino immigrant community that that didn't have the, the means to sort of try to figure out how to save the building. And it's a giant stone building in earthquake country. And so it sat there and I would drive by it on my way to work almost every day. And I would look at it and say, wow, look at that amazing church. I wonder what they're going to do with it. And then finally, I was like, someone, they need to tear it down. They've waited too long. It's too sad and it's too, but I'd never been inside. And I went inside about five years ago and it was filled with maybe 10,000 pigeons. It was raining inside. It sort of looked, I've yet to be in Havana, um, but in my mind, it looked like Havana or maybe something decrepit in Sicily but it was breathtaking. It literally was one of those. (gasps) And I said, I think I'm supposed to buy a church. (laughs) I love that you were um, open to that. And originally I thought I was going to move our studio there. We have a very beloved building here in San Francisco that we call the Magic Factory. It's a beautiful old furniture factory that, that was built around the same time, the turn of the 20th century. And it was notoriously an SM leather factory, which gives it even a more illustrious history. But we thought, well, maybe we will move our studio to this big, beautiful church. And then it became apparent to me that even in, with my illusions of grandeur, that that was perhaps not the best use of the building to have it just for us. And so the big idea really came from the fact that what do we do? What do we do in our best day? Who are we? Who are we as artists? Why is it important? And began to look at that and to look at the idea of community of connecting people around art and beauty, connecting established artists with emerging artists to show them how, like, how wonderful is that? The fact that someone who's made it can actually be connected. The people they think they may never meet, they're going to be in the same room with them. And then also, Connect them with patrons.
0: Yeah, that patrons are good.
1: <laughs> patrons are good. And so that became the big idea that we would start a very old-fashioned art society. It is now a 501c3. It is, it's been called Ken Falk's New Private Club, but it's really a foundation where which is called the St. Joseph's Arts Foundation. And whose mission is to to truly promote art in all of its forms. So culinary arts, visual arts, performing arts, literary arts across the board. And it's not simply about being a new arts organization. It's really about being fostering the community and being a resource to the myriad of amazing arts organizations that exist here in San Francisco. And so we started that. And we opened the doors in 2018 and the end of September of 2018. It has been a big success. Certainly this past year has been a a challenge for lots of organizations and certainly for a building that was about being a community. But oddly you know, where we thought that it was all about this building and all about being in that building. And then suddenly when you couldn't, we had to ask ourselves, well, frankly, the community is bigger than that. So how do we maintain and build and grow and connect our community? So we've done and the team has done an extraordinary job of virtual programming and maintaining and not only maintaining, but growing it, which brings us to... To Provincetown, we we happened to that's what I, that place I wanted a, to
0: ask you about because for, a
1: forlorn house across the street, <laughs> right. um, that seventeen sixties old sea captain's house that was also the home to a legendary woman named Mary Heaton Vorse, whose granddaughters approached us and said, "Our grandmother's house is, is going to fall into the wrong hands, and it you know we don't have the wherewithal to save it, but we hear you love this town, and maybe you would." And so we have now created the Provincetown Art Society there, which is, is linked to St. Joseph's honoring her legacy. She was an amazing woman who far ahead of her time in 1906, she came to Provincetown. Wow. She was an amazing labor activist, a civil rights activist, suffragist. She was the, on the conference of women at The Hague. To wow. get women the right to vote. Uh, amazing. She amazing. Uh, bought the wharf in Provincetown, known as Lewis's Wharf, and opened its doors as the Provincetown Playhouse where Eugene O'Neill uh, performed. Absolutely famous.
0: Uh, Very famous.
1: And so she's someone who who sort of outlived her, she died in 1966, I think. And, you know, had she died in 1940, she would have been really famous, right, <laughs> but, but right. by then, you know, she sort of was a little forgotten, but her story is incredible and her impact is incredible. And so it was a beautiful way to honor her and sort of connect two places that I love dearly. And, and now we are actually also undertaking something up in Healdsburg, which is in the center of the Sonoma wine country, a beautiful little town and a space that was very loved in the town known as the shed, Which is now going to become Little Saint, an outpost in Healdsburg. So, even in the midst of these sort of troubled times, I think it's been beautiful to watch that this idea can still be supported and still grow and actually expand. You know, if we ever needed it, it feels like we need it now a way to connect as humans and to celebrate. Sort of the essence of what makes us human. Right. And anyway, I can go on and on about that, but no. Um,
0: no, but it, it's one of the things that's always impressed me about you is like you, maybe you have these movies in your head, but they're cinema scope. You take the widest view. I mean, <laughs> a lot, a lot of people buy a house in Provincetown and they renew it, refurbish it, like your beautiful house, and then they go and enjoy it. That's all they do. You see the town as an opportunity like you would see hillsburg when you're these are opportunities and you really expand out and let your vision and your support really because you this is a ton of work that you do on behalf of these towns and province town and what you've done there and it's it's really really impressive that you become an active citizen of these places where you live and not just living the private life but you live a public life that welcomes a larger public in. And I find that
1: really, really impressive. Thank you. I, I, I try. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, you, you succeed. You do. Re- it is very, well, very like,
1: I I always think there's a great quote from Steve Jobs and it says like, if you're not going to make a dent in the universe, then why are you here? And so if you're not going to give back and try to, uh f- help.
0: But it's not always that easy because I know some people don't want change. They don't like outsiders. They don't like fresh energy, you know, and I know.
1: No, it's not. It's not criticism.
0: Right. But I think you win people over eventually. Can you, you, you (laughs) know, (laughs) part of your charm, your passion doesn't go away. You don't give up. And I think that's a great thing. So getting back to the movies in your head, you know, that this vision. I know a lot of our listeners who are designers and look to you for ideas and I'd love to see where you're up to. What movies are screening in your head at the moment? Are there periods that you're thinking about? Is there like a color palette that's intrigued you? Because I know you're a wonderful colorist and you use color. So I
1: love color. Wonderful. Right? Yeah. Um,
0: so what are you thinking about now? I don't what have do you a lot of black ahead? and white movies in my head.
1: Uh, <laughs> what am I seeing now? You know, it's sort of, I think of them almost like love affairs. <laughs> Here's someone who have been with the same person for 29 years, 29 and a half, but yet uh, these projects are like fabulous lovers, and you sort of fall in love with the the latest one. You know, we are working on the Cloud Club in New York, for instance. That's a which great, is a sort of, huge coup for you, amazing to work on the Chrysler, the Chrysler building, building. To, right? Is incredible and. It is from a color standpoint. This is a great example of the movies in my mind. I had found out that we were going to do the job and had gone and met with A.B. Rosen. And I was actually on a plane, which I did a whole lot until March. And I'm looking out the window and thinking, you know, how fortunate I am to have this life. And it was this sort of religious, godlike like cloudscape outside the window with the sun and these amazing colors, the pinks, the orange, the corals, the blues. the And I took a picture of it. And I just thought, this is almost too good to be real. It's so beautiful. And I get to have my head in the clouds. And it just suddenly hit me. I was like, this is the palette. for This is the Cloud Club. This funny, beautiful, extraordinary photo is how I should feel when I'm in the cloud club. And it literally became our palette. It became the motifs for fabrics. It one little moment, which seems sort of obvious to say, oh, I was looking at the clouds and the cloud club is going to look like the clouds. But it kind of wasn't that simple. And yet it, it never was. is. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm desperately in love with all of those beautiful, wonderful, pastels that i think at times i might have been sort of afraid of or think that they would be too cheesy or too girly and instead i see them as utterly glamorous and you know i can't get enough of them and i i have to say even though the answer to the question of what is your favorite color for me has always been the same since i was not that i could really pick a favorite but i would always tell you orange since i was maybe three years old which I'm sitting at a table that has an Hermes orange reverse glass top to it. So it, I live by my word or creed. But pink, I have to say, I have a good amount of it in my wardrobe. It is such a flattering color. Our living room in Provincetown is painted. A, one of the best colors ever, if I'm giving little tips out, it's a Faro and ball color and it's called settling plaster. It is this weird old lady pink, and it is perhaps one of the best colors ever. Um, Subliminally, it
0: must have influenced me because my living room in Connecticut is setting plaster. Same exact color. Is it not? I agree with you. It's it's a great color. It's a great color. color. It's It's so
1: chic. It can be modern. And it it changes during the day with the on the
0: light. It goes gray. It's a great color. One of
1: my And it looks good with everything, I think.
0: Great minds. (laughs) Great minds. Now, I wanted to ask you. We've all been suffering through COVID and thank God the vaccine is on the horizon. Do you have fast. some fast? Do you have no, a vaccine? If only, if only, if only, but I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping to, but so I wanted to ask you, clearly it's had a huge impact on hospitality. I mean, New York is suffering terribly in terms of the restaurant yeah. situation yeah. and hotels. So many have been shut down, but it's also changed the way people live in their private homes. And I was wondering what you think of the ramifications are going to be that are lasting in terms of your private clients? What are they looking for in their homes? And how do you think it's going to the long-term effect on when restaurants come back and hotels start filling up again? Do you think there's going to be long-term effects from things we've learned yeah. from the pandemic?
1: So we we actually own a restaurant here in San Francisco called Tosca, which is a legendary mm-hmm. restaurant. If you're a San Franciscan, it's a, a hundred years old, beloved restaurant that three of us went in and became the owners of last year just in time to refresh it and not open because of COVID. So I have deep personal connection to outside of my my work, but to the huge loss of, you know, now we're in lockdown again in San Francisco and we spent all this money to open this great parklet and we weren't making any and we we're just losing money, mm. but it was keeping right. people employed. And so right. I have right. despite my own personal good fortune, I have a lot of real connection to to witness other than I can't go and hang out at the coffee shop anymore. But, I, you know, you really witness the difficulties that that are facing people. And to answer your question, in the private realm, one of the reasons I think, thank God we are busier than we've ever been is because. Here are these folks who are actually in their house giving them a workout. They are living in right. their houses in ways that they've never lived in them. You know, Those and their kitchens filled never saw people. such action. never saw such actions. <laughs> Guest bedrooms that kind of didn't matter matter because they're filled with kids or relatives or kids' friends. Um home, and, offices. Yeah, home offices, movie rooms, that you name it, um, more space. The idea of having a place to escape to if it's, you know, another home to get to. And so, really caring about how they live, caring about rather than just sort of accumulating spaces or houses or things, or, you know, that they may go to for two weeks a year to go skiing, suddenly becomes a refuge that feels very important. And I think that part is lasting. I think it's lasting that we have a shift. You know, I witnessed the shift in my life. You know, I have this beautiful, rich life, but I'm also moving a hundred miles an hour and on a right. plane six, seven times in a week. And I love it, but I also was sort of in the back of my mind saying, I wonder how long I can actually keep all this up. You're on a
0: plane so often. Somebody asked me, they said, does Ken know how to fly a plane? Is he a pilot? Everyone thinks I can fly.
1: I I charter a little plane and I sit next to the pilot. And so I have a great seat, but please don't let me ever fly a plane. If I have to fly a plane, we're in trouble.
0: I said, I don't think
1: so. No, no, no. I'm not actually (laughs) flying. I'm just uh, the co-pilot. And so... I was on a plane a lot and suddenly when your life stops, I think that is one of the things that is the hidden beauty and all of the difficulties and the tragedies and the loss that everyone's gone through. And certainly some far more than others is that the connection to our homes, to our families, to it's a revelation to me, certainly to my clients that I could operate my business and not have to. Go move as much that we could be effective and do all of these things. Do we still miss and want and expect that we will go back to more face to face? Of course. But I think something that may have been out of balance has been rebalanced for people, which I think will be one of the beautiful things coming out of this. As far as hospitality goes, I think certainly a respect and an understanding of how we think about ourselves and how we, I don't think we're always all going to be setting six feet apart. And that, you know, I think a lot of us have a lot of pent up. We can't wait. Like I'm a hugger. And the fact that I haven't been able to hug people, I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I think it's human nature. We're going to go back to that. Yet I do think from a hospitality standpoint, I think it's good to think about people's health and how we are in these environments. And I mean, I don't want to get a cold. I don't want to get the flu. I don't want to get whatever bug you had been carrying around. And I think oftentimes we were sort of like, it was a badge of honor to be like, I'm sick, but I'm going to work or, you know, I'm sick, but I'm sitting next to. And so I think having that is sort of respectful. And I think that part of it will continue. I don't know that it's not possible, frankly, like a little restaurant like Tosca. You can't not set two feet from someone or you wouldn't be able right. to operate the restaurant. There was a beautiful editorial early in the pandemic from the woman who owns Prune, which if you haven't read oh, it. Oh, yes, I read that. Like, Does the world need my heartbreaking. restaurant? And heartbreaking. heartbreaking. But it's true. Like, you know, it's already so difficult. And I think that may be one of the lasting things isn't the health requirements. It is how difficult a lot of cities, especially make it for small businesses to operate. And suddenly when you can have a parklet and you can do these things and to recognize that we, you know, we put so much onerous on them. And so I think that's like a lasting, hopefully effect will be more appreciation and support for small businesses.
0: I hope so, because sometimes I worry that New York is going to end up with nothing but Olive Gardens and Bubba Gump's. You know, the yeah. smaller yeah. personal restaurants are the ones who are really struggling. Yeah. The chain's can yeah. afford to, so to wait it, you know, out. Wait it I mean, out. It's been yeah. hard on everybody and it's certainly hard on their staffs and their people have been furloughed. Yeah. But, you know, I'm hoping that the city. Those are the people we need to, to yeah.
1: support for sure, because there are dining rooms and our living rooms. And right. Our, you exactly. Know, it's meet so, up and it's. What we miss as urban dwellers is that connection. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that there's going to be huge pent up demand for all these restaurants and all this travel. (laughs) I know I'm
1: longing to travel. I can't wait.
0: I I, I know. (laughs) Get back in the co-pilot seat there. Well, this has been so fun and fascinating. And uh, can I really... Thank you so much for being on the Cherish podcast. And I really, really appreciate it. And I know our listeners are going to love this.
1: Thank you. We are big fans of Cherish.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cherish podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or even better, go to the iTunes store and post a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast.com at Cherish.com. The Cherish podcast is produced by Britta Muller and edited by Max Solomon of Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.